Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. Welcome to a brand new week. My goodness, welcome to October. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life. We got some interesting ones. Uh, anything that's on your heart, just call us 210-340-9585. If you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app, and as always, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, we got some stuff going on uh, tonight. Our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies at 7 o'clock. It's a great time to bring the whole family. Uh, all you need to do is show up at 7 o'clock. Uh, everybody worships together, and then they go different directions. Uh, tonight, Augustina will be teaching the ladies. Pastor Ken, the men, Pastor Chris, and Pastor Matthew will be teaching the youth. That's all at 7 o'clock. Ladies, you can watch at calvarysa.com. Also, uh, please keep uh, Paula and uh, all of the other pastors' wives here at Calvary Chapel in your prayers. They are on on their pastor's wives' uh, retreat. I don't think they're listening today, but uh, in the event they are, I miss you already. I love you, and and I uh, hope you and the girls have a wonderful time with Jesus. Well, let's get to some questions that have been sent in as we await any of your phone calls. Uh, our first question comes from Lynette from our email inbox. Uh, she says, In Revelation 7-9, a great multitude that came out of the Great Tribulation are standing before the throne. Uh, and all of the angels, elders, and living creatures are around the throne. Where are those that were raptured before the final seven years? Lynette, the, the, when, when the church is raptured, when we're taken out of here, we immediately go to the great uh, wedding banquet of the Lamb. It's where we uh, will receive rewards, we'll lose rewards, but, but it's a place where we will be married to Jesus. That's a banquet. It is a great celebration. So nowhere in the book of Revelation do you see uh, the, the, the raptured saints after chapter 4, verse 1. So uh, they're, they're with Jesus. This is before Jesus comes back. The people that you see that came out of the Great Tribulation, um, uh, they're standing before the throne and all the angels and living creatures around the throne. Uh, this is just a, a, a salute to God's holiness and the victory that he is going to have. We also have in the book of Revelation uh, the saints, the martyred saints who are found underneath the altar 
of God, and they're crying out for vengeance. How long, O Lord? And, of course, they're told to be patient, wait just a little bit longer. So uh, don't confuse those of us who are raptured. The minute that happens, we will be in the presence of the Lord at the wedding banquet of of the Lord. Uh, And uh, those who are uh, left behind during the Great Tribulation, um, they're on their own, sort of. And, you know, the, the people will be getting saved, Lynette, during that time. But uh, they have nothing to do with those of us who are in heaven. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Kay. This is a difficult one. She says, I have a family member who says he just wants to understand why people are Calvinists, but it seems he's getting more of their mindset than he thinks. He says he hears smart teachers who are Calvinists, like Paul Washer, Vadi Bakum, and John MacArthur, and concludes that they're so wise that he may be understanding incorrectly how we are saved, and parenthetically, being the elect or having free will to choose or reject Jesus. I'm reminded in 1 Peter 1, 2, um, it says, We are elect according to God's foreknowledge. By the way, K, um, Romans eight twenty nine says exactly the same thing. Uh, he used to understand this like I do, that God knows who will submit and be born again, but gives us free will. Now he doubts the free will we will have. Uh, says that in Scripture, the unsaved are called slaves to sin, and dead men and slaves and the dead have no power or say so in anything. They cannot come to salvation on their own free will because they have no free will. Can you help him give me some guidance how to help him see clearly again? Much appreciated. Okay, um, there's really not a lot you can do. If he's going to immerse himself into into Calvinist teaching, uh, I, I can promise you he's probably going to be convinced, not because the evidence is there, but because these men that you mentioned are great speakers, and typically the the rest of their doctrine uh, is solid, uh, and God is using them. Calvinists are saved; they're real believers. Um, but um, this this whole idea that that when we're slaves to sin, the whole world is slaves to sin. But people make choices in their dead. We're dead to God, uh, but but we make choices all the time. Um, uh, people who are unsaved make choices to, to resist God. Uh, people that are saved make choices to come to God. And But, but make no mistake, we have to make that choice. So, um, you know, he says he just wants to understand. That's why he's listening. Um, believe me, it is... It is uh, um, I, I want to watch my words carefully. Uh, it's It's not a good thing. When when that's being drained in, you know, Calvinism makes a lot of sense. We want to know why people, some people get saved and some people don't get saved. And we like to have explanations. So it's just easier to blame God. Well, God chooses those who are saved and those who are going to hell. Here's the problem. And and all of these guys are great teachers. Um, I'm not crazy about Paul Washer, but but Vody and, and, and John MacArthur uh, are, are, are are great teachers. Um, the, the problem is that they make these illogical leaps to the conclusions. Um, well, if somebody's dead, uh, they can't do anything. Well, dead people walk around all the time. Dead people make choices. Dead people make decisions in their lives. We're dead spiritually. We're not dead physically. And because we're not dead physically, we have the ability to choose right or wrong. And we do that all the time. So those kind of illogical leaps uh, to their conclusions uh, simply don't make any sense at all. Um, from the Old Testament all the way through, uh, you can go from the Garden of Eden, man has always been given a choice. God never forces himself on anyone. Man has always been given a choice. And so to, to come to the place where you say, well, election means, uh, it doesn't mean at all what they say. One of the worst teachings that they have is that that um, um, the idea of this, this foreknowledge, they'll say, well, well, God knows in an intimate way. God knows. Um, but but it's, it's, it's illogical and it makes no sense. God doesn't force us to come to faith in Jesus Christ. We have to make that choice. Now, I also want to say this. The doctrine of election is clearly biblical. 
So the idea, I know people, some people just reject predestination or, or election completely because they just don't want to believe that God um, uh, makes these choices. Um, but, but it's clearly biblical. The only thing that the Bible tells us is the basis upon which God makes that choice. And you said it in First Peter chapter 1, um, Romans eight twenty nine. God says he makes that choice on the basis of his foreknowledge. He knows what people are going to do. And he sets his love upon those who he knows are going to be his. One final thought here, Kay. You can't find a single place in Scripture where election or predestination is used in conjunction with condemnation. It is only spoken about in terms of salvation. And when you try to make election pass over to uh, condemnation, then you're going way, way, way past what the Bible says. And those are the kind of illogical leaps that, that men like Washer and Bauckham and John MacArthur make. Again, I want to be clear. I like Vody Bauckham and I like John MacArthur. Um, um, they're both faithful servants of God. They're just wrong in this area of free will. If God doesn't give us free will, then we have no capacity to love. Thank you, Kay. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question. This one doesn't have a name attached to it. It's from our email inbox. It says four, so I don't know if it's somebody that's what they're saying. But it says, if the Corinthian Christians were acting so carnally, why did they have multiple spiritual gifts? I know that the gifts are products of God's grace, and he will... And he he will do and give the gifts as he pleases. But to me, and there's your problem right there. But to me, if they were allowing so much sin, why the blessings of gift? I know the answer will revolve around grace, but I'm still a little confused. The answer doesn't really revolve around grace at all. Um, the, the, the Greek word for spiritual gifts or for gifts is the word charis, which is grace. That's That's why we talk about grace. These are God's gifts. Um, uh, but they're gifts of spirit. First Corinthians chapter twelve verse seven says that God gives to each, to each, a gift or gifts plural of the spirit. So the minute we're born again, the spirit comes to live within us, and gifts are given. Now the problem is that we can operate in those gifts uh, in the flesh. Uh, you see it all the time. You, you turn on a, a so-called Christian television program and everybody's speaking in tongues at one time or people are falling down backwards and stuff like that. That's not the Holy Spirit. No, those Christians still have gifts. And Hebrews says that God's gifts and calling are irrevocable. So God gives gifts because he wants to bless his children. But if we're going to use those gifts in the flesh rather than by the power of the Spirit, um, God doesn't stop us from doing that. And that's exactly what was going on in Corinth. The, the church in Corinth was so carnal. In 1 Corinthians, the entire book is a rebuke to these carnal Corinthian Christians who are using these gifts uh, in their flesh. Um, and that means they were, weren't really gifts at all. They're just being uh, counterfeited. I believe that the enemy also is involved in, in encouraging the counterfeit use of the gifts of the Spirit because he doesn't want the real gifts of God's Spirit uh, flowing in the churches. So when you see all of this stuff going on, um, um, we, we can't blame the Holy Spirit for it. But the idea here is when we're saved, God gives gifts. Jesus said, how much more will the Father give the Spirit to those who ask? And because each has at least one manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit, it's our choice whether we're going to use them in the power of the Spirit for the glory of God or whether or not we're going to use them. Let me tell an embarrassing story on myself. When I'm a brand new Christian, um, and, and you know, we're, we're, we're still pretty carnal and we've got a lot of growing to do, but as a brand new Christian, I got the gift of tongues almost right away. Um, I, I mean, it was just a matter of days, uh, and I was so blessed by it. I, I didn't really understand it, but but I knew that that this was a gift from God. 
And as I was using that gift, I noticed when I would go to these churches, especially this church that Paul and I were going to at the beginning, I noticed that when I was speaking in tongues, which I didn't know you weren't supposed to do in church, I, you know, I didn't know that that was out of order. So my heart was in the right place. But I noticed that people started noticing. And they'd come to me after and they would say, well, you, you were speaking in tongues? And I would say, well, well Yeah. And they would, they would, well, well, how do you do that? And I would like to do that. And, and they really treated me like I was like some super spiritual person. And I got to tell you, that really appeased my ego. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, so I would, I would start praying in tongues just loud enough so the people all around me could hear because I liked the attention that it got. Well, you see, when I started liking the attention they got, I was using a gift that God had given me. But I was doing it in the flesh rather than in the spirit. And not only was there no value in it, but there was no fruit that came from it. So um, the, the gifts of the spirit, when you see them being used carnally, that's not the Holy Spirit at all. So when you say, but to me, if they were allowing so much sin, why the blessing of gifts? The blessing of gifts, like salvation, is free. It happens when we get saved. And then you see people speak in tongues. You see people falling over. You see people faking healings, things like that. Um, God's just not involved in that. That's all flesh. And um, hope that hope that makes sense to you. I want to. I, I, I always like to demystify the gifts of the spirit. Um, but we need to, we need to have the right heart, the right motive when we're using them. Thank you for the question. Here is an anonymous question from our email inbox. Um, My husband divorced me, then came back to me later saying we should be together again because in the eyes of God, we're still married. We are back together, but he hasn't legally remarried me. Am I living in sin if we are living as husband and wife again, but legally we are still divorced? Um, Two things. One, once you get a divorce, you're not married in the eyes of God. Once you get a divorce, um, whatever the reason, uh, somebody's at fault, somebody's in sin, um, but but you've ended the marriage, so you're not still married. Now, I know we men say, well, you know, we're married in the eyes of God because we want to have sex. But the reality is that's sin. Yes, you're living in sin, and you and your husband either, or your, your ex-husband, either need to get married and get married right now, or you're trampling all over the grace of God. You're compounding the sin of the divorce. Again, I don't know who's at fault. I don't have any details. But you're compounding the sin of the divorce with now a lifestyle that is in the face of God saying, you know, I don't care about holiness. I know this is wrong. And Anonymous, even by writing in and asking this question, it's clear that the Holy Spirit is dealing with you on it. So what are you going to do? Again, I know the physical relationship is important. I know that we 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 want to be sexually satisfied, but nothing is going to be right in your home as long as you're living in rebellion against God, and you are. So please go to your church, find a pastor, and and go down and get a marriage license. And get married. You don't even have to get married in church. You get married at the courthouse. But but you need to be married. And until that happens, um, you and your husband or your ex-husband need to separate. You need to say, God, we're sorry. That's what repentance is. God, we're sorry. We know we're doing what's wrong. Uh, please forgive us. And then the way you demonstrate your earnestness about your, your repentance is you do that by... Uh, separating. I've had people anonymous, and this happens a lot. People get saved. Well, well, we're living together, but but I don't have anywhere to go. I've told men, it doesn't matter where you go. Sleep in your truck. I don't care where you go, but you've got to get out of that house because your responsibility is to show this woman who Jesus is. And now you're the one dragging her into sin, and you've got to stop. So it doesn't have to be a period of time. It doesn't have to be a week or a month or a year. Just just get married. But until you are, have nothing whatsoever to do with being in the same house as your ex-husband. 
I've had people also say, well, you know, we'll still be there, but we won't have sex. That doesn't work out very well. So, Anonymous, repent. Tell your ex-husband to repent. And one of two things is going to happen. You're both going to repent, get right with God, and let him pour out his blessings and his spirit upon your marriage. Or you're going to find out your ex-husband's real heart. Well, we can't get remarried. I don't want to get remarried now. We're still married. And God, if he still kind of comes up with that lame excuse, um, you need to get him out of there. Period. Because you need to be right with God. Please consider that very carefully. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here? No, instead of three. Oh, okay. This one is a question from Kaylee from our email inbox. Uh, She says... What do you think happened to those people after the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37? I've read it before, but didn't think about how crazy and awesome it actually was. Um, Kaylee, this is a tough one. The, the, the way you asked the question, you're making it sound like those were real people. This was a vision, a supernatural vision uh, given from God. Um, uh, Ezekiel was transported supernaturally to a time and place, not in the moment. So this is a vision of this valley filled with dry bones, and the bones are a result of many years of disobedience and war from both the northern and southern uh, tribes uh, in Judah. Uh, So these aren't bones that came back to life. This is a vision. And what Ezekiel was doing is he was seeing this in the spirit, and it was telling a story about what was going to happen um, uh, in 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 the in the future um, that that Israel would come back to life. These bones are the result of years and years of disobedience of war. Uh, they're the bones, as I said, of the northern tribes uh, that were conquered by the Assyrians. Um, um, the bones of Judah were there as well. Um, and um, these are likely dead soldiers that he's looking at, uh, but they didn't really come back to life. Uh, we know they had been slain uh, after the devastation of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. But remember that this vision transports us outside of time and space, so these dry, animal-ravaged bones are seen as though far in the future. Uh, it would be something that would be awful for Ezekiel to see, uh, it was considered a curse for a Jewish dead body not to be washed uh, and wrapped for proper burial. So uh, for the time being, um, these bones would be left to be dried and hardened by the sun and the wind. And, uh, you know, God had warned them of that uh, always. So um, can these bones live? He asked. Well, the human eye, the answer is no. But but God did exactly that. Um value for us in terms of our lives is significant. Um, God's word is being delivered by Ezekiel. Um, It's the word of life. The Bible uh, is the word of life. And all we need to live godly lives uh, is the word that is spoken. Uh, Jesus said his words are spirit and they are life. So uh, that's the import for you and for me on this. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Remember, whenever you're you're, you're looking at prophecy, you have to be really, really careful uh, in terms of of is this something that's real, or is this just something that is a vision? And and there are both of those things in many of the prophecies. Here's I think probably the last question we'll get to from um, for this first half of the program. This one is from Cat from our email inbox. She says, a friend of mine has been going through a lot lately, seeing things that aren't there and believing some insane things that he says he's been gifted to see even though no one else can see them. However, the things he says he sees are always dark, always negative. Anytime I'm around talking about God, it seems that those are the times that the voices are the most active, trying to confuse him. Uh, It could be nothing, I guess, but it's gotten violent at times. Uh, He's wanting to know the Bible. But where can we start to make the most 
of um, the short time that we might have before he might snap back into the angry dude. Um, Cat, you're clearly dealing with with a, 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 a demonic presence. I'm not suggesting that your friend is demon possessed. If he's really saved, he cannot be demon possessed. But but to me, this sounds like a guy uh, who isn't saved. Uh, again, I'm not judging his heart. I don't know him. Um, but um, uh, when people see voices, uh, I'd be interested. If I was talking to him, I'd find out about his background. Is, is he using drugs? Um, uh, is he is he seeking um, uh, familiar spirits? What's going on that there would be these voices? Um, uh, I've 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 actually had some people that that uh, were actually in our church for a long time, and they went through similar things like this, and I've never been able to talk anybody out of it. Um, you know, unless unless they're demon possessed, you can cast a demon out. There's not much more that you can do. Uh, so pray for him. Let him know you're praying for him. And and every time he starts with these stories, just tell him I don't want to hear about him. I don't want to talk about him. This is not the Bible. This is not Jesus. Jesus' voice would be a voice of love, a voice of assurance, or a voice of correction. And all you can do is protect yourself. Don't be around somebody who gets violent, especially if the possibility exists that he is possessed by a demon not really saved. We've got 30 minutes left in our program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to our program, 340-9585. We'd love your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Nacho from our email inbox. I said, Pastor Ron, a few weeks ago, you taught on Mary of Bethany. I did, and Nacho, that's one of my favorite character studies in all of the Bible. Okay, a few weeks ago, you taught on Mary of Bethany and how she poured a very expensive perfume over Jesus, a perfume so expensive that may have been worth her entire dowry. Would it be possible to think that Mary, who was quite spiritual um, in her walk and seemed to be more in tune with Jesus than the others around him, that she may have considered that she was giving away her dowry to Jesus. I think it could be two possibilities. One, because she truly believed Jesus was going to die. And secondly, she might have had an insight that she would be married to Jesus in heaven. Uh, I hope that makes sense. If if I'm understanding you right, that she'd be married to Jesus in heaven, wouldn't need her dowry, uh, that's a possibility. I think probably unlikely. Let, let me just go back a little bit with, with this whole um, study character study on Mary Bethany. Three times she's found in scriptures, Nacho, and all three times she's found at the feet of Jesus. Um, it's a place of worship. It's a place of surrender or submission. And believe me, when you are surrendered to the Lord and when you are a worshiper, God is is seeking those who worship him in spirit and in truth. If those two things apply to your life, you're going to have spiritual insight that the people around you do not have. And clearly, that was the case with Mary of Bethany. She got stuff that even the disciples who walked with Jesus didn't understand. Remember when she poured out the expensive perfume, Judas started trouble. And, oh, this could have been given, sold, and given to the poor. Why this wasted perfume? And Jesus stopped him. He rebuked him and and, and said, She's done a beautiful thing to me, and and wherever this gospel is preached, it'll be remembered. What she's done will be remembered. And uh, in this particular case, um, every time Jesus spoke of his death, he followed it by speaking about his resurrection. Um, The disciples didn't get it. They didn't listen. It was like they didn't want to hear about his death, so they didn't hear the good news that was to follow. But Mary understood it. She prepared his body for burial. That's what she was doing. Jesus said that himself. 
And so, yeah, she got it. Peter didn't get it. John, who was always physically close to Jesus, he didn't get it. None of the others got it. But Mary got it. And the source of her spiritual insight was the fact that she was close to Jesus, that she was a worshiper, a true worshiper, and and she was surrendered. And I think that's what makes that story so valuable because that's all any of us have to do. Whenever um, people will, will talk to me, Nacho, about, um, well, you know, the Lord's not speaking in my heart. I'm reading the Bible. I'm not getting anything from it. I, I ask him, okay, tell me, how much time are you spending? Are there things going on in your life you know God doesn't want you to be doing, but you're doing them anyway? Mary, all she cared about was being with Jesus. Earlier, Mary, with Jesus at her home, Martha was all busy and bothered by the preparations. Lord, make her help me. I'm doing this all alone. And Jesus, Martha, Martha, you're troubled by many things. And then he said, your sister, Mary, she's found the better part. When Lazarus died, even though disappointed and grieving, Mary fell at Jesus' feet when he finally arrived. I think that's important. That's the key to real spiritual insight. And she gave uh, a year's worth of wages is what what that would have cost, that that perfume. Um, And she did exactly the best thing with it. Really good question. Thank you very, very much. Here is our next question. This one is from Terry. He says, I'm having a disagreement with a friend about prenuptial contracts. He says they're okay. I say no. What do you say? Terry, I'm with you. If you have to if you're gonna marry somebody, I'm talking I'm I'm speaking to Christians now. I, I would give a Christian different advice than I might give an unbeliever. But for a Christian, if you're marrying somebody that you need a prenuptial agreement, a contract, uh in, in order to be able to trust them then then you're not marrying the right person. It's that simple. It's it, Christians, we promise God that we're going to get married forever. So if we, if we intend to keep our promise, why in the world would we have a prenuptial agreement? Now, I understand that people come in to marriages with different levels of debt, with different levels of, of, of wealth. Um, but remember, the whole idea of a Christian marriage is to becoming one. And that means there's no secrets, there's no division, you're already planning um, what will happen when you divorce. Uh, it's, it's simply not um, a Christian basis for getting married uh, under any circumstances. Now, I would, I, again, I, I would give different counsel to two people that were um, not believers. Um, yeah, take care of yourself. Yeah, these things might happen. But but not for Christians. Um, prenuptials um, simply violate the intent. It, it, it's simply saying, God, um, I'm going to break all the promises that I made to you. So I'm just going to cover my my bases in case this doesn't work out. Not good at all. So you're right. Your friend is wrong. Here's a question from Francis. It's spelled like a male Francis, not a female Francis. Um, he says, how can I best share with my family about the errors of the prosperity gospel? Francis, I, I, the only thing I can tell you is is you sit down with an open Bible, and it's easy. Um, I, I challenged somebody one time. I said, you pick out, we were talking about a particular Bible teacher. And he was a false teacher. I said, you can pick any message you want. And inside of the first 10 minutes, I'll show you a whole bunch of doctrinal errors, false teaching. And and he wouldn't take me up on that claim. Um, people like the prosperity gospel because they want to be rich. The love of money is the root of all evil. And there's a lot of people that tell you it's okay to love money. And they, they, they claim to be Christians when they're really wolves in sheep's clothing. Um, I, I I think your 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 family members probably know that the prosperity gospel is not correct if they're really saved. But I would ask them, let's let's listen to any message that your 
prosperity gospel preachers preaching. And let's do it together with open Bibles. And in the first 10, 15 minutes, you'll be able to say, that's in opposition to what the Bible says. That contradicts what the Bible says. And then it's up to them. So, Francis, they've got to make the choice. So pray for them. Um, don't argue with them. There's no point in arguing if they won't open their hearts and and and, and open their Bibles and, and critically um, be a Berean. You know, the, the Bereans wanted the message to be true, but they examined the Scriptures to see whether or not they were. And that's all you can do. If they're not, I, I, I've found that people um, who have been in the prosperity gospel churches for any length of time, they're there because they want to. It reveals where their heart really is. And uh, I think it's really, really um, hard for them. I, I think pride, you know, it, it, the, the, the prosperity gospel panders to our flesh. Our flesh is proud. We don't want to admit that we're wrong. I had the same conversation uh, Francis, with a uh, a man who was a casual friend of mine. Um, he used to be a pastor here in San Antonio, and uh, we would we would see each other at the gym all the time. He was very familiar with our ministry and loved it. Um, but but he was preaching a prosperity gospel, and and I had this conversation with him, and I just said, look, all we have to do is is look at the Bible and listen to one of those messages. And I can show you, you know this isn't true. And I could tell that he really knew that it wasn't true, but he finally answered by saying, you know, I just can't believe that God who loves us doesn't want us to be rich and healthy in this life. And that was him saying, I don't want to be confused by the facts, so there's not much else that you can do about that. So I hope that makes sense to you. Phones are quiet, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Gina says, trusting God is hard for me. What am I missing? Gina, I could spend an hour on this question. I won't, but I could spend an hour on this question. Um, Walking by faith is not supposed to be easy. Why do we think it is? Here's your problem is you just have too much faith in you. You want things to make sense. You want things to be logical. And you think that if you get in a mess, you can get yourself out of it. I know that, Gina, because that describes me. It's what kept me away from the Lord um, for a lot of the 13 years Paul was praying for me. But here's why trusting God is hard for you. You haven't given him a chance to show you who he is and how much he loves you. It's that simple. You don't know him well enough. I can promise you you're not in the Word, at least not studying it, not with an open heart. You're probably not serving in your church. You're probably holding some things back from the Lord that you know he doesn't want in your life. And he can't move on your behalf. So, Jeannie, here's what you do. You simply, you've got to repent of your uh, unbelief has always been the, the reason people go to hell. Now, I'm not suggesting you're not a real believer, Gina, so don't misunderstand. But unbelief is always a reason. You know, when um, um, we're told that the promises made to the Israelites in the Exodus wilderness I had no value to those who perished. Why? Because they didn't combine the promises of God with faith in God. And so your issue is faith. Your issue is is um, there's something in your life that's keeping you from enjoying the presence of the Lord and enjoying the fullness of what he wants to do for you. Now, Gina, I'm going to give you a test here, okay? Here's what I would like you to do. I would like you to find something that you really need God to do. Whatever it is, the, the thing that's the most important to your heart. Make sure it's not something that's completely selfish or, or, or um, um, just, just whatever the issue is in your life. Just say, Jesus, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slow down. I'm going to trust you. I'm not going to get involved in, in trying to figure this out myself. And I'm going to ask you to show yourself to me. 
prove to me, Lord, that you can trust me. And Gina, I'm betting he'll do that. But here's the thing. When he does, then you're really accountable to trust him from this point forward. So to trust God is the easiest thing in the world for me because he's been so faithful for so long. He's never disappointed me. He's never lied to me. He's never failed to correct me when I needed correction. How could I not trust him when his track record is so good? Here's the problem. You don't have that track record. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, Hebrews eleven six says. So, Gina, you're not in a place, you're not living a life that's pleasing to the Lord because you're not trusting him. So, repent and then let God move. Don't move yourself. Resist taking matters into your own hands. But ask God to do something that can prove to you that he's trustworthy. And then get in the word, spend time in prayer with him, really get to know him and serve. Gina, I hope that makes sense to you. Here is a question from Kenny. How much does God overlook sins caused by bad things that happened to us growing up? Um, Kenny, God cannot overlook sins, period. You know, we, we like blaming people for the messes that we make. And and that's just the enemy blinding you. Um, you know, that's sort of living in a state of victimhood. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says that if anyone is in Christ, let me change that, okay, Kenny? If Kenny is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Now, if God has taken away the old junk in your life, and I know you still remember it, but if God's taken away the old stuff, why are you a victim to it even now? Why should what happened to you in years past influence your future one more minute of one more day? Now, I'm not being naive here. I realize that we're all products of our environment. We're products of the places and the people that we're around growing up. But but you see, when you meet Jesus, everything changes. So, Kenny, I'm going to ask you, as I just asked Jane a minute ago, are you... Uh, do you have enough faith to believe that? Do you have enough faith to believe that, that whoever it was, whoever betrayed you, whoever let you down, whoever abused you, whatever the situation was, do you have enough faith to trust that God would never do that? If you don't have enough faith, you need to learn more about who he is. But keep in mind, Kenny, God never overlooks sins. Jesus took the punishment for your sins in mind, Kenny. But God can't overlook. He can't pretend they didn't happen. He can't say, well, oh, he, Kenny had a tough life. Uh, Kenny had a dad that didn't love him. Or Kenny had parents that divorced. And whatever whatever your your past is, is made up of. Right now, God says, there's never an excuse to sin. From this moment forward, Kenny, again, I'm assuming you're a born-again believer. From this moment forward, you never have to sin based on your past. Not one more minute of one more day has to be consumed with that. So if you're looking for God to give mercy on you because you, you've had it tough, you don't understand what he's already done. To all of you in the audience, and this is something that, as a pastor, I deal with all the time. People who have been so abused in their past that they've got this idea that God deserted them back then. And that sort of gives them excuse to do things that they know they're not supposed to be doing. God never deserted you. And once you're aware of sin, there's never an excuse to sin. And if you let him do it, he'll take away all of those chains of your past. And all you have to do then is, is trust him to walk with him. So bad things happen to everybody. We all overcome stuff. Kenny Paula, I said earlier she prayed for me for 13 years, but Paula just wanted to be loved. There were two people in Paula's lives, her mother and me, who didn't love her. We said we did, but neither one of us really did, and we certainly didn't act like it. And Paula used to think, this isn't fair. The two people who should love me the most don't. 
But this is a woman filled with so much joy because she's been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ and she has been forgiven and um, she's now free. And, and Kenny, freedom is a really, really good thing. So no overlooking sins, not, not by a holy God. Matthew, is a Calvinism question again. Matthew says, do you disagree with any or all of the five points of Calvinism? Matthew, I disagree with Calvinism completely. Uh, the five points can be nuanced so that some of them make a little bit of sense. Um, um, the, the, the acronym TULIP is is the five points that Matthew refers to. And um, um, the, the T stands for total depravity. Yeah, we're we're enemies of God. But the fact that we're totally depraved does not negate our ability to make a free will choice. That's really important. So, so no, I don't agree with their construct of total depravity. The U is for unconditional election. Uh, I said to the question earlier in the program, the election is only spoken of in our Bibles regarding salvation. It's never spoken of regarding condemnation. And so this unconditional election, what a Calvinist means by that is that, well, just God's going, okay, I choose you, but I don't choose you. I choose you, but I don't choose you. You're saved. You're going to hell. God doesn't do that. That's not unconditional election. Again, the basis upon which God makes choices is his foreknowledge. God lives outside of time and space and knows everything. The third um, letter in the acronym is L for limited atonement. And this is evil. Limited atonement is just evil. Um, that God would would die, even though the word says that he died for the sins of the world, limited atonement would say, no, 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 he, that doesn't mean he died for the sins of the world. It means he died for those that he that he's chosen. Or he died only for the elect. It's simply not true, and it diminishes God. Um, um, uh, this, this, to me, borders on heresy. Um, again, Calvinism is orthodox in the faith. They're really saved, but, but it, 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 it changes the character and the nature of God. The I is for irresistible grace. Um, irresistible grace, like, like we can't resist God's grace, well, no, you can't resist God's grace, but we do all the time. Peter says that God is unwilling that any should perish. And yet people perish. So that's because we can resist God's grace. We have the, the, the free will to do that. So, so uh, irresistible grace makes no sense. Uh, and I've never had a Calvinist be able to explain that to me. Well, well, who are you to question God? You're just the clay and he's the potter, which is silliness. And then the P is perseverance of the saints and um, the reality is everybody who's chosen by God is going to persevere. We're going to make it to heaven. So I hope that makes sense to you, Matthew. Let's go to a phone call. We've got our first call today, Greg from Bulverde. Greg, thanks for calling. You're on the air. First of all, tell me again, what is the your favorite Bible? I, I never have written it down, and I need to write it down now. Uh, my favorite Bible version? Yes. Yeah, the 1984 NIV. Okay. Uh, avoid, secondly, Greg, I, Greg, avoid, avoid the 2011 at all costs. Okay. Okay. Okay, great. Uh, also, now, if you can leave me on, and because I have a, a follow-up question on this, but it's in okay. Ezekiel. I heard a, a teaching uh, on basically demons and Satan and all this, and uh, one of the scriptures that was uh, used uh, is really describing Satan. It's a, Ezekiel chapter 28. Kind of covers from verse fourteen through, you know, for sure fifteen, mm-hmm. but and it's just describing Satan and you know how great he is and all this stuff. And, and fifteen says, you know, he was perfect in all this. I'm reading from the New King James. You were perfect in all your ways from the day you were created, till iniquity was found in you. So my question is, uh, I was under the impression that, uh, I guess. Uh, you know, angels, cherubs, didn't have free will. Only were given free will to either accept Christ or reject reject God. So, was he given free will? And if he was created and he was perfect in all his ways, where did this iniquity come from? 
And I'm, yeah. I'm guessing, you know, it had to come from, did it come from God? Did God put that iniquity in them? Well, no, God, God, God cannot put iniquity. There's no evil, no darkness at all in God. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So God is never the source of iniquity. Um, um, angels had free will. Uh, it was a one time. It's different than our free will, Greg. Angels had a one time only choice. Now, remember, uh, people say, well, that's cruel. God should give them more to whom much is given, much is required. These are angels that stood in the presence of God. So they were far more accountable than humans. Humans, we, you know, we can we can keep changing our minds and and, and come to repentance. But but this was the most beautiful Lucifer, the most beautiful of all of God's uh, creation. Um, uh, Ezekiel 28, verse 13, uh, seems to describe, in the King James, um, seems to describe uh, the, 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 the angel that was in charge of worship in heaven. So um, the iniquity came from him. Given a choice, given a choice, he fell into the trap. Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 12, talks about the five I wills of Satan. I personally believe, Greg, that this happened uh, to Satan uh, at the very time when uh, Adam and Eve were created. And, and as beautiful as Lucifer was, he saw that that uh, uh, man was God's greatest creation. I think that's when the jealousy began. And that's when he, when he said, I will cast my throne above the Most High. Uh, I will ascend to heaven. I, I will... Um, um, ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. That was the choice he made, and we also know that he used that choice to, to turn away a third of the angels with him. He was able to deceive them. Got a follow-up question really quick, Greg? We're running out of time. Right, that, that answers my question. Thanks. Okay, very good. Thank you. Hey, I appreciate the call. Thank you for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Uh, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I will be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.